absolutely need to get together and let our voices be heard. This is Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. I'm Bridget Jaipal Valenza. I'm Dave Debo. And I'm Thomas O'Neill White. After May 14th, how can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Tops Market. In the suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. If we're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. Good morning. Good morning. This is Dave Debo. On the program this morning, we'll be looking at, uh, we talk about this a lot, obviously, what the community needs. The Partnership for the Public Good has come up with their community agenda. It's a list of priorities that they would like to see. Coming up a little bit later in the program, Jay Moran will talk with their executive director, Andrea O'Sullivan. Stay with us for that. It's, it's a, an interesting discussion. But before that, once again, we are going to the well of redistricting. We're going to be talking a little bit about all the council maps. Uh, As you know, there was that contentious hearing on Wednesday. We had several guests and different perspectives there talking about that. And I think one of the the weaknesses, really, without Collins, a program like this, dedicated to real deep, good discussion, can't always have more than one voice on at the same time. And uh, when we had different people on on Wednesday, that raised things that other people wanted to talk a little bit more about. So we thought, let's let's uh, have one more bite at the apple, as it were. Russell Rusty Weaver is here from the Buffalo Outreach Office of Cornell's Industrial and Labor Relations School. He's a geographer. He is uh, the director of the research there at Cornell's ILR Buffalo CoLab. He's the one also that worked closely with the Our City Group to create the alternative maps that most people at those public hearings last week week really wanted to see implemented. He's someone who's crunched the numbers and uh, wanted to talk a little bit about some of the criticism of those maps specifically, so we thought we'd bring him back in. Rusty, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me back. Talk a little bit about outreach, because I think one of the, the criticisms that we have sometimes heard is that and someone on the program said it last week, that this is not of the community, that the amount of outreach that was done to create your alternative maps was not adequate to reach members of the community. You would argue, because I saw what you did on Twitter, you would argue that that's not necessarily your job. That That's the council's thing. Right. Well, I, I would say that the outreach that we were able to accomplish through our City Action Buffalo um, is a thousandfold more than the outreach that you saw from the Common Council, who really does own this process. So by the charter, it's the council that has legal authority for redistricting. They do appoint a commission, um, but because it's the council's process, they have all the resources at the city at their disposal. Um, it's a process that they need to make more open, transparent, participatory, um, and, and really long. So it's a process that needs to start early and involve as many people as possible for as long as possible because it does lock in decisions um, or the decisions that get made, I should say, get locked in for 10 years. Is the frustration that we saw last Wednesday, all of that uh, outpouring in any way because of a lack of outreach, would you say? Um, I, I, that's definitely part of it. So 
I think the last time I was on, we, we talked about some of the complaints that we've been hearing at the various public hearings now, and they really fall into two different buckets. Process is a big one, but so are our outcomes mm-hmm. and, and how the council's map is drawn and um, may, maybe splits some different neighborhoods in, in ways that don't seem to make sense at, at a visual inspection, things like that. When, how did you drop your maps? When, when you drew them up, did you do any sort of polling or talking to neighborhoods? So the very first set of maps that's, that we drew, this was sort of a, a scrambling phase. So when the commission's hearing was announced for May 18th, um, a lot of us who pay attention to the process thought that that was a public hearing that was designed to solicit public input so that uh, the commission would have resources Let's get opinions, then let's draw our maps. But instead it was, right. here's a map, the, what The work had already been done, right? Okay. And so that's not what folks were anticipating. Um, and so our coalition that, that got together decided that we needed a rapid response. Um, so we drew up maps that, you know, without having any resources working as volunteers, we drew up maps that we wanted to put out for comment to see if we could get some feedback. And so we drew up an initial set of maps where we released an open analysis to be transparent about how it was done. Really what we did was we took the city's own planning neighborhoods that really talented planners who work for the city created. Um, and we tried to preserve those as best as possible. We put out an initial map. Um, folks liked that map. They started to sign on a, a petition saying they wanted the council to consider it. But others said, well, you could probably tweak this or that and, and make it even better. And so we listened to that process. Um, you know, if you talk to the folks at our City Action Buffalo, you'll hear that they had thousands of emails, texts, and, and various other methods of communication from people um, who were giving opinions. And so we took all of that to heart. We listened at the council's public hearing. We took notes there and we revised the maps. And, and now we have a, a new set based Be- on that. Because some of the criticism, and, and I, I, I'm reluctant to really emphasize it because, A, I don't want this to be a back and forth between one of our previous guests, Katrina Martin-Bodeau. And uh, so, some of the criticism that she raised, um, I think, was that Okay, you, you listened, but you didn't really immerse yourself in the community. Right. And I, I totally understand the frustration that she was expressing. This does need to be a process that gets into communities and involves people um, as closely as possible in this process. That didn't happen at the council level. And again, with sort of a community run group of volunteers, it's not necessarily possible to do that as volunteers unless the council wants to give us all of their resources so that we can run that process. I want to get you to respond, though, to one of the things that she said. This is an example, she says, of how things were drawn. And if they were drawn that way, she says it's an example of how little community input there may have been. The north side of East Ferry Street is the Maston District. The south side of East Ferry Street is the Fillmore District. Um, the way that the map stands today um, the Our City plan moves to take the entire Genesee Moselle community out of um, its districts and put it into the Lovejoy district. Um, And that is not something that was discussed with the community. That's not something that we would agree to. They couldn't have had a conversation with people in the Maston district. And the reason why I say this, you are not going to have community members in the Maston district agree to cut their only community center out of their district. All right. And so the Grider and Delavan Center was specifically built for the Maston district. And um, no community activist group block clubs are going to agree to eliminate their district, put it in Lovejoy district. The argument would be that some things that happened couldn't have happened 
if you were deeper in touch with the community. Sure, and and again, I, I more don't deeply. want yeah, I, I don't grammatically correct. Don't want to dismiss um, any of of that speaker's concerns. Um, I I will say that you know it, it's also that she's kind of speaking for block clubs and everything there as well. Um, but the the fact that uh, I think she even mentioned that we take the whole community and, and move it into a different district right now. Um, that Genesee Moselle neighborhood, at least how the city represents it in its planning documents, is currently split between um, Fillmore, Maston, and Lovejoy. Um, and so our goal that we've been open and transparent about this whole time is to fully preserve those planning communities, those planning neighborhoods, as much as possible in single districts. Um, and you also have to balance that against the population equality requirements and compactness. And so rather than splitting that community or that neighborhood between three different districts, we found a way to make sure that it's wholly contained in a, in a single district. And that that speaks to one of the requirements for drawing new maps. They have to be compact. They have Correct. to be uh, contiguous or at least, uh, I don't know, a polygon of some sort, a square, a triangle, something something other than a squished toad or or, <laughs> or whatever uh, shape you wanted to describe right, yeah, the map. That, that's a, a legal criterion. The districts are meant to be compact. You're supposed to have minimal variation between length and, and width, basically, is in the city charter. Then how can... And I don't want to just say the city of Buffalo because everyone does it. Mm. How can they get away with with the squished frog or the <laughs> the? Uh, uh, I think of Louise Slaughter's old district in Congress. They called the it the earmuff. Right? <laughs> um, someone I think referred to one of the city council districts uh, look that they're looking at now as a falcon. <laughs> I mean, in a lot of ways, these shapes are not compact. No, no, they're not. Um, and I think they can get away with it because this is a process that historically has been an insider's game. It hasn't received as much public scrutiny as it has this time around, largely thanks to the coalition of volunteers who've, who've come around. Um, and now realizing that compactness is, is a legal criteria, and the more people realize that and look at the maps, I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen such mobilization around this issue over the past couple of months. I want to get into the substance of what you folks are proposing and a little bit about uh what kind of optimism, if any, you have for your plans actually being adopted. Russell Weaver is with us from Cornell's ILR Buffalo CoLab. He's their director of research. He's the guy that basically, with a lot of uh, help from a lot of people, put together the Our City Buffalo maps that uh, were being considered by the city council. I shouldn't even say that. That were put the city, put forth before the city council for possible consideration as uh, what the city adopts. Um, and in the course of those public hearings, again, these maps came up with, uh, were put up for some criticism that I really wanted to get give you the chance to respond to. I want to go back again to our program earlier last week, Katrina Martin-Bordeaux, and she talked about this, about how uh, the different assets get distributed when the lines get drawn certain ways. The Our City Map creates an elegant district that concentrates basically the poorest people in the city within that district. It then goes down and takes two districts that have a majority white people in it, which is the First Ward, right, and um, the Seneca-Babcock district, right? Yeah. Um, st more, more struggling, um, working um, class community, and you, you put the, the poor white communities, the poor people, right, with, with the poor black people, right? That that doesn't where there's no development going around in the central part um, of the city. And that makes a difference where the, our city map cut the districts to the west to give themselves the all of the development real estate where all of the government development is. And so for you, it's more than just gerrymandering, which I'm thinking I hear you say it is. Yes. For you, it's. A land grab. It's, a, it is, a, a, an economic, a grab of economic assets. That's exactly what it is. 
push back against that argument, Russell. Sure. Um, so I believe what she's referring to there is we did take the planning neighborhoods um, that's, you know, uh, she mentioned Seneca Babcock, um, then the places like the Fruit Belts and, and the Ellicott community. Um, those are grouped together in one district under the plan that we put forward. Um, one of the reasons is because they're whole planning communities that are adjacent to one another. And so that's a, a legal requirement that um districts need to be contiguous. Um, so that's one. But, you know, talking about how assets get divided, when you look at things like the city budget, the capital budget, or even discretionary funds, um, the precedent in City Hall has been to divide those resources evenly between districts. So take the total budget, divide by nine, and that's how much each district gets in all of those allocations as a benchmark or as a baseline. Um, and so when you do that and districts sort of meander into different territories that have different Then you're needs, going to get a different line that has some assets where they were and some assets on the other exactly. side of the line. Exactly. And, and so you might be able to um, uh, potentially put more assets into distressed communities if they are grouped together and have similar needs. Um, that way, they're not seeing their resources um, being sucked out into, say, like Allentown or a community that has a, a totally different set of needs. One of the arguments I've heard, though, is that um, not only should they be compact, not only should there be no gerrymandering, Talk a little bit about the idea of diversity. Sure. Um, if you can build a diverse district like, say, Lovejoy, or if you can introduce more diversity into uh, Fillmore or South Buffalo, that would be a good thing. Is, is it the mission of the council districts to do that? Can you do that? Well, so under the, the Voting Rights Act, so if you talk about federal law, there are tons of precedents that if you can draw a compact district where persons of color collectively make up uh, the majority of, of the population or the voting age population specifically, it's in legal precedent. They use the term majority minority district. I don't love that term, um, but that's how it appears in, in a lot of the, the legal casework. Um, you know, the idea is that you should draw those districts, right? And, and you should try to increase the, the voting or electoral power um, of populations that have historically been marginalized in the U.S. voting system or the electoral system. Um, and so the Our City Action Map um, does that affirmatively. So right now, under the status quo, there are... Um, four districts where the total population, the biggest share of that population are folks who identify as black or African-American. The council's map decreases that from four to three. Um, the R-City map keeps it at four. But when you look at the voting age population, um, both the status quo and the council's map have just three districts where the plurality of voting age population are black or African-American residents. And the R-City action map creates an additional one, a fourth. And so um, there, there are potentially shifts in elect power that could come with changing the districts in a meaningful way. On the entire map of the city, let's say I have a district over here, we'll call it, uh, for the sake of discussion, the Lower West Side, mm -hmm. and it's primarily Hispanic. And then we have a district over here that is uh, uh, near the Jefferson Avenue tops. We'll, we'll call that uh, primarily African American. Wouldn't there be more advocates for the African Americans or the Hispanic people if Every district had some sort of slice. If if districts, instead of being drawn, as you describe, compactly around existing groups, if there was a thought to make this district uh, a true melting pot and that district a true melting pot, and if you did that all over the city, then, and, and maybe this is just a theoretical, but then I can envision um, 
African voices having more than one city council member. I could envision Hispanic people having more than one city council member instead of being herded into these fences where they only get one member per district. It's a, it's a possibility, but the, the reality, I think, when you look at the demographics and, and just the absolute numbers of, of uh, how many people there are who identify with certain groups in the city, the more you slice that up, uh, they tend to call it cracking and, and gerrymandering. Dilution. More, right. Okay. It, it could lead to vote dilution. Um, again, we can't necessarily make that case without having done it, letting the districts in place yeah. for 10 years and seeing how it goes, but that's a possibility when you begin to divide populations farther and farther and farther apart. And if the federal requirement is to try and group people together uh, based on neighborhoods, then that's completely counterintuitive. Right. And so that is uh, you know, one of the legal criteria, even in the charter, the fourth one is to preserve communities of interest. And in parentheses, one of the ways to define communities of, of interest are neighborhoods. Um, and so if you try to, to sort of slice all over the city um, in a way that you're describing, you might be cutting through a lot of different neighborhoods. All right. I wonder how much of our discussion today is moot. Um, this process, let's outline the process. You, city Council came up with their maps. Uh, you would thought that the public hearings early on would be a way to kind of get more input into the process, but it was really, hey, here's a map, look at it, uh, kind of a fait accompli. You and the uh, our city group came up with alternative maps, which the public really embraced. The city council still endorsed their maps. They sent that off to the mayor. The mayor uh, put that up for the, the contentious public hearing we were talking about last week. And now he has to either sign it or veto it or just leave it on the table for 30 days and it becomes law anyway. Is any discussion about your maps kind of already dead? I hate to say it that way, but... It sounds like that might be the case. That, that's a fair point. And um, I'll, I'll just be totally open, too. Um, we did propose an alternative. We really did it as a visioning exercise, mostly, um, just to say that these are, are ways of drawing districts that prioritize communities of interest. We don't to get them to think differently? Right. Yeah, we okay. don't necessarily expect the council to adopt the map as is, um, especially because you know they have shown some concern for incumbency and, and not placing members in the same district, which I, I believe our map would do. Um, but it, it's just a, a way of prioritizing something that hadn't been prioritized prioritized in this process for at least 20 years, which is trying to preserve their own planning neighborhoods mm. that, that their departments are creating. Um, and so the fact that they haven't had much discussion on that suggests that they, they probably don't intend to. Mm. Um, but even if the process does come to a conclusion in the near term here within the next 30 days, whether the mayor decides to act on it or not, um, I I have heard rumblings about a legal challenge to the maps, okay. and yep. um, that would extend the process a little bit longer and I think give the advocates a, a bit more time and opportunity to make a case for doing things differently. If the mayor rejects it and it goes back to the city council, do you picture them just adopting their maps anyway? Or is there a scenario under which yours is still alive? They look at yours and say, hey, that, that part of his plan might not be a bad idea, and they kind of merge the two and play around. I, I, I'm not so optimistic about that. I, okay. I think that they, with the unanimous approval they gave to the map that they created, they could easily override a mayoral veto and, and just um, put their boundaries into place. And that's one scenario. The other would be that Mayor Brown takes no action and it just goes into effect by default. Right. And so uh, either one of, of those two outcomes, I, I imagine you'll probably see a legal challenge. 
What have you learned during this process? Are you disheartened, uh, disenchanted, disheartened? What I learned is that if people know about this process, they want to be involved. And so I am not disheartened. I'm super optimistic. Um, you know, we have to see this one, uh, this process through a conclusion right now. But 10 years from now, I think people are going to be ready to go. So I am optimistic about the response that we've seen from folks on the ground. Glad you came in. Thanks so very much. Thanks for having me. Russell Weaver is with Cornell's ILR School, their Buffalo Colab. He's a researcher and a geographer there. And again, the guy that kind of worked with uh, the Our City Buffalo Group to come up with their council redistricting maps that have been the subject of so much debate here. Again, Russell, thanks for being here. Coming up next, Jay Moran and Andrea O'Sullivan. Stay with us. This is Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Support for the WBFO Mental Health Initiative is provided by the Patrick P. Lee Foundation, a private family foundation focused on two key investment areas, mental health and education. The Lee Foundation is committed to supporting a community that is well-informed about mental health, inclusive of individuals with mental illness, and served by high-quality, accessible mental health services. Learn more at lee.foundation. Watch Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Crystal Beach was such an important part of the lives of anyone growing up in the western New York or southern Ontario area. Relive those childhood memories with the WNED PBS original production, Remembering Crystal Beach Park. Now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran with us, Andrea O. Sullivan the Executive Director of the Partnership for the Public Good. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for uh, joining us here. We have a lot to talk about because we're going to get into your community agenda, which is a massive undertaking that the partnership does every year on a variety of levels, both from input and then output. Well, let's just get into input just for a second. Um, The idea of how this community agenda is developed. Yes, great. So each year we are a partner network of about 300 community organizations and groups from block clubs to labor unions, theater groups, arts groups, environmental groups. Um, And we put out a call every fall for them to come together and bring to us what is the one policy change that would advance their work, that would advance a more just, sustainable culturally vibrant region. Um, And so they come together and bring to us ideas. Um, You can look on our website at many years of the community agenda. There are often priorities from housing to land use to police reform. Um, And each fall, the partners will come together and share those ideas, discuss them together. Um, Ultimately, in December, they take a vote and the top 10 proposals in that vote become what we call the community agenda. But this time around, it became 11 uh, That is right. We have a tie occasionally, um, a tie in the votes where we take on an extra one. And that really drives what we um, we call ourselves a community-based think tank, what we at Partnership for the Public Good work on that year. Um, we train the partners in working with the media, working with elected officials, doing community coalition work. And then we'll bring those priorities to most of the elected officials at the city, county, and state level to see what we can agree on 
done and advance in that year. And you most certainly have had success in changing policy for sure. We have. We are turning uh, 15 years old this fall. We've done the agenda for uh, 12 or 13 years, this process, and we've seen... um, 40 to 50 policy wins from the city, county, and state level, Um, some environmental legislation at the state level. Um, In recent years, we saw that a lot of the uh, police reforms that Mayor Brown brought in from fix-it tickets to reducing low-level arrests, those were all on our agendas from previous years. Um, So as you know, policy change can take some time. (laughs) We don't always see a win in the year that that item is on the agenda, but often the next year or two years later, that issue comes back around and we and our partners are ready with the research, the data on it, and can kind of step back into that issue as well. So 325 groups get involved in this. It, you'd like to think that that's just about everybody, but I'm, is it open to other groups? I mean, are there others that are expressing interest to get involved as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we're not always 300 partners. Uh, that has grown each year, um, and we have a form on our website. You can look at a set of principles, which is really a vision for how we and our partners see Buffalo Niagara. What are its strengths and challenges? What are assets to build on? What do we need to change? Um, And that's what you're signing on to when you become a Partnership for the Public Good partner. It's free to join. We have um, large formal nonprofits that are members. We have a few small businesses and cooperatives. We have um, volunteer efforts like block clubs. And so it's really a big range and folks are certainly welcome to explore partnership and and get in touch with us. Yeah, It's an an exhaustive process for sure, but one that's worthwhile in in terms of trying to bring as much community input into it as possible. At the same time, I'd like to think, and I think I can speak for uh, my colleagues here uh, at uh, Buffalo Toronto Public Media, that priorities changed on May 14th. Mm. And I'm curious about that, if if there has been any kind of shift or focus on some of these different elements inside this community agenda that have come out of some of the things we've learned since May 14th. Yes, um, I would say absolutely. And at the same time, what I find remarkable about our partner network um, and what really always happens when you listen to community leaders and neighborhood leaders doing work to build more caring, equitable communities at the very local level, those folks always know what the real long-term issues are. So while May 14th certainly brought uh, a more public and sharp focus onto issues of racial injustice and segregation, those are the issues that our partners have been putting onto this agenda for many years now. Um, And so we saw the same thing in 2020. Um, That agenda that we launched at the start of that year focused on eviction prevention, food access, water affordability, all of that ended up the most critical issues of the year once the pandemic started. But our partners had already said these are really important issues. Um, So certainly we are, um, you know, doubling down our support for our partner organizations that are led by people of color, that are east of Main Street, um, and that focus on these issues of land, of food access, of how our city developed in a way that is still uh, quite divided. And one of the issues. There have been a lot of issues, obviously, that we've heard about since May 14th. But one that seems to continue to swirl through is the how is the city of Buffalo going to use this public property that they have at their disposal? We're talking about vacant lots, uh, things, uh, pieces of property that have been uh, given up by its previous owners for a variety of reasons, of course. And there has been, you can hear this in many different conversations 
with a lot of different perspectives about the concern there is inside some of those east side neighborhoods that we've really been focusing on here. So let's get into that because that is the number one thing on your community agenda, the uh, utilization of public land for public benefit. What's the focus or what was the focus when it came to the agenda? That's right. So thank you. So for many years, we've heard this issue um, from our partners who in the past were able to access vacant lots to build affordable housing, to create community gardens. And a few years ago, we started to hear across the board, it's getting harder for us as community groups or as nonprofits to access these these lots and especially to buy them so that we are able to keep up this good work for, for years ahead. Um, and so this last year, a, a task force formed that uh, is led by Grassroots Gardens of Western New York, several block clubs um, like the Greater Eastside Fields of Dreams Block Club, Coppertown Block Club, Fillmore Forward, a, a lot of east of Main Street, and then uh, more garden groups as well. And they came together to say... You know, the city still holds uh, about 8,000 lots. 8,000. 8,000, which are publicly owned. We we sometimes call them city-owned, but they are city-held, publicly-owned lots. And what's going to happen to those? Can we work with residents, community groups, and nonprofits to have really a plan led by neighborhoods and residents of what will happen with this mass amount of publicly owned land within the city. Um, those lots are concentrated in the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood with quite a few significant amounts also in the Maston district and some in the Ellicott district. Um, and Many of these lots have already had community garden projects, youth projects, um, other, you know, food growing efforts that are led by local residents for years. And in some cases, um, the gardens now in the network of grassroots gardens have been maintained by residents, by senior citizens for maybe 20, 25 years. People that are beautifying their neighborhoods. That's right. Rather than have an empty lot, which we know can end up with grass uh, growing all over the place and all other yes, types of problems. Yes, and we see a lot of complaints about that. And I think our city council members receive a lot of complaints about that to their offices. So we should be really grateful that these community groups are already doing the work of beautifying their neighborhoods, of doing this maintenance. And so the question is, can they now gain ownership over this land? And that's where I think it raises some of the justice and segregation and ownership issues that May 14th has also raised when we look at how did we end up in such a segregated city. Um, you know, this is an issue where we should recognize the the work, the years of value that neighborhood residents have put into this land and create a process where community gardens and nonprofits can purchase the land that they're working from the city so that they don't have to worry that it will be sold out from under them. Um, that's the fear is, you know, the, these lots, again, there are 8,000 lots, so there are many, right. many available for development, but these lots that community folks already have an interest in can they purchase that to make sure um, it's not going to be, you know, suddenly sold off and taken away as such an important community space? I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot here, mm. but we do see in the Fruit Belt, the uh, uh, Fruit Belt uh, Community Land Trust. Yes. Can you walk us through that a little bit, how that might model might be able to work in other parts of the city? Because it sounds, again, kind of what we're getting into here, the idea that, this is public property. This belongs to the people of Buffalo. 
how can they determine how it would best help them? And is there, are there lessons in, in the Fruit Belt that we could maybe apply elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. And the Fruit Belt Land Trust has participated in this uh, public land task force as well. And, you know, in Buffalo, we have, I think, two great examples of land trust, Grassroots Gardens as a community garden land trust and the Fruit Belt as one that is working toward being a housing uh, land trust, uh, which is really focused on, again, uh, residents have been in the Fruit Belt in some cases for generations, as the medical campus developed, as the city becomes more economically prosperous, are those long-term residents going to lose their homes because the neighborhood becomes less affordable to live in, taxes go up, it's harder to to be there, um, or are they going to be able to stay? And so the land trust came together. Um, so many of our partners were involved and led on that effort um, from Open Buffalo, Push Buffalo. Many partners uh, came together and created the Fruit Belt Land Trust. Um, and I think they are in a real active conversation over the years of whether that could be applied to other parts of the city. Um, so it could be interesting to have them on to talk about that more as well. Right. Um, but certainly we see in other cities that that is a model that can be followed um, to put more and more of the vacant land either into public trust or into nonprofit and community ownership to make sure that it is used for public purpose and not only sold for private development. Um, and again, in a city where we have 8,000 lots, we're not saying no private development by any stretch. Right. We're saying set aside a rather small percentage of that 8,000 lots for public purpose. At the same time, of course, the partnership is trying to, I think, and doing a nice job of getting everybody involved and making sure that there's appropriate pressure perhaps placed on certain parts of government or, or wherever you want to point the blame when it comes to things not moving along as quickly as we'd like. At the same time, it seems obvious that this land should be for the public benefit. Can you take us through as best you'd understand it? And I know I'm asking you to maybe speak for others, but what are the roadblocks? What are the roadblocks to keep this from happening? What, what do you understand? Um, you know, the roadblocks, I think there's a few different parts of city government involved. There's different departments to engage. Um, and then I think there is just a question of imagination. Do we imagine that these neighborhood residents uh, can take care of these lots themselves? And to be frank, that's one hesitation that I have heard um, is, will these folks be able to care for this land in the long term? Um, you know, almost is there enough trust in our neighborhood residents to move this land to their control. Um, and that certainly is discouraging because, as I've shared in many of these cases, uh, these neighborhood residents have already been leading the way, doing this work, transforming lots, in fact, saving the city quite a lot of money, uh, maintaining them each year. Um, and there's a study I don't have with me, but that um, Samina Raja of the Buffalo Food Lab did a few years ago for Grassroots Gardens that added up the sweat equity, you know, how much right. were these gardeners actually saving the city um, by putting in this amount of beautiful work each year. Um, so I think it's both uh, practical issues of how would this be done? How have other cities done it? We have a lot of that research to share. Um, and then it's also kind of a question of, of will and imagination. Um, you know, who do we believe deserves to have ownership, deserves to have a say in what happens in their neighborhood? Um, and that's something certainly that this effort, and as you've seen, the, the Fruit Belt Land Trust have in common by really saying it's the long-term residents who should have the strongest voice in setting the future of the places where they live.
I know I may be jumping the gun a little mm. bit in terms of uh, the, the community agenda, but I think we're tying into something else that I'm also hearing a little bit about. The imagination that the east side, all this money that's going into the central terminal project, the, the, the changing of the Kensington, it looks like it's coming, that all of a sudden we're going to see a gentrified portion of the east side of Buffalo that is going to perhaps you know, outpace the the income of of many of those community members again back to the idea that we have this public land available um that could be used for the public benefit how what is that a, i guess a a justified concern and b are there policies that we can do in advance to keep that from happening mm. again i mean everybody wants to see the city improve we don't want to see poor people getting pushed out of their homes that's right so you know, I think that's always happens when you have big investment coming in. Um, there's nothing like big outside money to distort the plans that residents have had, um, you know, to, to bring a lot of questions in. On the other hand, um, you know, reform in those areas that you mentioned is something that many community groups have wanted for years. Right. So I think it comes down to who will get the say on what happens at a place like the Central Terminal or what happens to the expressway. Um, will it be outside consultants and you know experts? We talk a lot about experts in public policy work, um, but who are the real experts? Is it outsiders that we bring in who maybe have done this elsewhere? Or is it folks who live in the neighborhood, who walk that land every day, um, who have spoken with a few generation of kids of what they would like to see um, you know, so we really try to redefine who is an expert, who has knowledge that matters, and make sure that those folks are being listened to um, at all levels. So, yeah, I, I don't live east of Main Street, and I would certainly defer to the leaders there and the community groups and block clubs there for the vision that they have. Um, and also for you know, the current conflict of this is great to have such an influx of money, but it does raise concerns for how it will be realized over the years. And uh, before we uh, go to break, we're going to take a time out here in just a little bit. But just um, from your perspective uh, with the Partnership for Public Good, are you encouraged by the level of participation that you've been seeing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think... It was so interesting in 2020, like everyone else, we shifted to working remotely um, for a community network to lose in-person conversation, community meetings, community dialogue in person was a really big deal. We never saw more participation than in that year and, of course, the summer of 2020 um, with the mass calls for racial justice and police reform. Um, and that has really continued, I think, for us and for many of our partners and block clubs, we see um, such a hunger. Perhaps the pandemic helped us to see how important neighbor-to-neighbor uh, -neighbor conversation and exchanges, and we see really more participation than ever. I'm getting us bogged down at item number one on an eleven point <laughs> community agenda. But we're no gonna problem. take a we're gonna take a time out and come back uh, with more. Our guest is uh, Andrea O. Suleban. She is the executive director of the Partnership for the Public Good. We're talking about their community agenda. This is Buffalo What's Next. Watch the WNED PBS original production, Daredevils of Niagara Falls. I think part of the lure of Niagara was that it was understood to be a very dangerous place. A daredevil is somebody who goes out and does a daring thing. Maybe they make it, maybe they don't. Daredevils of Niagara Falls, now streaming on YouTube and the PBS video app. 
Enjoy the BPO from the comfort of your living room, patio, or anywhere you go. All summer long, you'll hear Buffalo Philharmonic concerts from this past season at Kleinhands every Tuesday night at 7. Listen at 94.5 FM, 89.7 FM in Chautauqua County. Stream at WNED.org classical. Listen with the WNED classical app or with your smart speaker. This is Buffalo What's Next, where we have conversations with the community about moving forward. To have your voice heard, press the Talk to Us button on the WBFO app, and we'll work to get your questions and comments on the air. Join us on Twitter at WBFO or email us at news at WBFO.org. Together, we'll have the conversations that are needed. This is WBFO, your NPR station. And welcome back to Buffalo What's Next. I'm Jay Moran. With us from the Partnership for Public Good is their executive director, Andrea O'Sullivan. Thanks very much uh, for joining us here. Uh, we got, I wouldn't say bogged down on the on item number one in your community agenda, but I think the, the public land for public benefit it just ties so much into mm. so much of what we've been hearing about recently. But there's more. And I think it just as interesting, that was the number one. And again, this was an agenda that was set with your process late last year and introduced this year. But number two, a cultural plan. It's interesting to go from the what seems like two very disparate uh, items on there, but yet a cultural plan is something that's very important to the people who had input on this. That's right. And our partners for several years have, have voted in an arts-related priority. Um, I think many of our partners really see um, the arts and, and culture as central to the vibrancy of our city and our neighborhoods. Um, and certainly as folks that do what we call a lot of the frontline work in our communities, um, you know, to have artists as part of our policy work, to have their creative expression as part of our work is really uh, critical for us. Yeah. Uh, and so when we look at what type of plan is wanted, what what it was missing before, I mean, it does seem like there's a certain amount of money that is spent on culturals. I think maybe the, uh, the federal government has actually kicked in some part of the American Rescue Plan as well. So it seems like there's I wouldn't say plenty of money. I'm sure every culture out there mm. is saying we could use more. I understand that. But that being stated, what is missing beyond just more money? Right. So this issue was brought to us by a big network of um, art art organizations across Western New York. Um, the big museums are part of it, uh, theaters. And our leading partners on this are Just Buffalo Literary Center and Road Less Traveled Productions. Um, and they would like to see, you know, every year... There's certain funding from the city for the arts, but it's it's extremely variable. Some years there's not very much. Um, a lot of it goes, in fact, to the maintenance of the arts-related buildings that the city owns. So okay. where they do budget for the arts, it's expensive to keep up, um, you know, theater buildings and, and things that the city owns. So often not too much of that is actually getting down to some of our small and grassroots arts organizations that work, again, at the neighborhood level. So there's a core belief, then, among your partners that getting artists, compensating them or helping them to be compensated is key critical to the to the overall uh, quality of life in the city. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've worked with another group called Frontline Arts Buffalo um, on previous agendas that focuses on getting more support 
to um, frontline arts groups that are most impacted by racial and economic injustice. Um, This year's is really saying, how can we come together, city and county government, to make sure that there's a long-term and comprehensive plan to support small, mid-sized, and grassroots arts organizations? And, you know, primary is, of course, the art and creativity and culture that artists and these organizations create. And it's also critical to remember um, that many of these organizations have been around for decades and they provide in their neighborhoods, um, such as Locust Street Art and Ujima Theater, um, decades of youth programs, again, a really important space for um, young people, but really people of all ages from that neighborhood to gather and to benefit. Um, We've had some folks who, uh, you know, they went through Ujima Theater Youth uh, programs 30 years ago. Now their children are in those programs. And so providing this important space of belonging, safe space for young people to gather, and creativity, in some cases, for generations of Buffalo residents. Um, These organizations often face really variable funding and don't know how they will thrive from year to year, let's say. And so to to have something more predictable for them to feel um, as a city and county, we value not only the art that they're creating, but really the public service that they're providing and serving residents um, and for them to know that that's going to be supported with public funds. Uh, to date, you know, we're here now in August. Um, the agenda was uh, released mm. in uh, January. Um, any uh, what's any progress on the on the front of uh, number two there? Cultural funding. We have made some progress. We've had some good uh, meetings with the city on that. We are also working on um, last year in the American Rescue Plan federal stimulus funding. Um, the city actually set aside in the plan $2 million for a frontline arts fund, um, which would support both organizations and individuals. That money was in the plan, um, but has not been allocated or transferred yet. So, you know, it's always so it was a in, lot. it was in the plan on the federal level. Um, that the city the put city. together. Oh, the city that put together the, a plan. The mayor's administration put together with that federal money. So we'd love to see that move forward. Um, so we're in conversations about that, too. And, you know, it's it's you interesting. You smiled when you said we're in conversations. Yeah, I was just for us as a at Partnership for the Public Good, we've got a large network, but a pretty small team. Um, uh-huh. So each year we pick 10 issues. But very often, of course, we have to keep following up on the implementation of any victories from the previous year's agenda. So that's one we're still um, following up on for sure. But this is something, um, yeah, that I that I hope to see moving forward. Soon. So there, so but the the good news is there is a little more money available. Um, the maybe uh, so-so news, uh, half half full uh, glass news <laughs> is that it's not quite there yet. The things can be slow moving um, in government work for sure. Is that and part so, of what for you and uh, your group is understanding that? That things aren't ever going to move as fast as you want them to. Most certainly, I'm sure a lot of your partners want to, to see move. Absolutely. And, you know, if you, you can, again, go on our website at ppgbuffalo.org, you can actually look back at many years of this agenda that so many partners have voted in. And what you'll see, for example, um, is probably the last four or five years at least there is a priority around language access and improving interpretation and translation as our neighbors and residents um, who are speakers of other languages increase. Why does that keep being on every year, right? Um, Well, we haven't yet seen the full progress that we want. Sometimes we'll see incremental things. Buffalo Public 
uh, police department adopts a language access plan, but can we get the city as a whole to do it? So they'll come back and and pitch that on again. Um, So we would certainly like to see more progress, but I think a critical role that our partner network plays is to keep the public attention on issues like this. You know in the media how quick (laughs) attention spans are. Um, So we could win a commitment for frontline arts, but if we don't keep coming back and saying, thank you for committing $2 million, but where is that money? That could easily be forgotten. And, you know, our public officials can say, it's great, we've done it, we've declared it, it's going to happen. And without uh, watchdog groups and partners like ours coming back and saying, thank you for that commitment, but in fact, this has not been implemented yet, a lot of progressive policy would just be lost in Buffalo and, and everywhere. That's the case. So, Andrea, then I, I guess not so subtly you're saying that uh, we have a story right here when it comes to cultural funding here in Buffalo. You can say no comment if you want to. We'll move on. Um, move on to because number three is a big one as well. And again, I think it really does tie into a lot of the things that we've been hearing out of some of these neighborhoods, especially on the east side, when it comes to getting investment from banking. Your number three on your agenda is public banking. Explain public banking and how perhaps maybe this might be something that could help out some of these neighborhoods that, um, I mean, it's no, I'm not telling tales out of school, have been victims of, of redlining throughout the years. Absolutely. So this uh, priority was brought to us by the Buffalo Niagara Community Reinvestment Coalition, which is housed at the Western New York Law Center. Um, and that coalition, in its previous work for many years, has worked toward community uh, reinvestment, community benefits agreements with banks in our region. So, you know, how can we make sure um, where not only we as residents are putting our money, but indeed where our municipalities are storing their public funds in corporate banks, that some of that benefit comes comes back to us. Um, there is a bill uh, in the New York State Legislature called the New York Public Banking Act that really takes that to a whole step further and says um, municipalities, cities, counties, regions in New York State should be enabled to create public banks so that those governments can store their own public funds in these banks. And that way, the profit made off of those uh, funds could be invested into small businesses, affordable housing, green infrastructure, right in that city or region. And we're not kind of losing the, the potential interest and profits of our public money to corporate shareholders, right? We're bringing it right back. So this is a really interesting one. Um, I know that we have held in partnership with the Law Center um, a couple of workshops to discuss what is public banking, yeah. right? It sounds like a, a novel idea or even a throwback idea. Um, and so those conversations continue. And on some of our priorities like this, we really are providing the Buffalo or Western New York input to a statewide um, campaign. So this is a statewide effort to bring public banking uh, to New York State. And and we're really there as the Western New Yorkers to say, well, this is how it would work here. Maybe the state bill should be amended in this way. So that's another role that we'll play when partners bring a state-level policy priority to us. But the goal, though, is to allow for money to be perhaps invested into parts of the city that aren't always getting the investment that they need. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know, you know, many of our local banks, I will say, are working to make progress. And at the same time, um, when when we pull up the data on where mortgage lending is happening in our city, as I'm sure you've seen, 
Um, you know, in some recent years, it seems unbelievable, but there is virtually no mortgage lending um, in some east of Main Street neighborhoods, right? So almost none. And so that's really certainly what the Buffalo Niagara Community Invest- Reinvestment Coalition would like to see changed in the big picture. And as you, as you've said, it's really part of the story of redlining. How did our neighborhoods end up so segregated? Um, and we really need to bring new investment um, into neighborhoods that have really been denied capital. Uh, you know, homeowners uh, in East Buffalo have have really not even been able to get loans to fix their roof in a right. lot of cases, right? So really common sense uh, way to make sure that neighborhoods, uh, folks have the capital to maintain their own homeownership and their own neighborhoods. But this has to be done on the state level. Well, that would be the first step at the at this right. point. Right, have to get a um, law. You'd have to get the law changed to allow it to happen. Right, municipalities in New York State don't have the the legal authority to create a bank, and this would change that where they could. And just to also mention, because we've talked about this off air, the partnership has had success in changing state laws. That's right. Um, we have been part in recent years of, you know, again, big statewide networks with large coalitions here in the city, but um, of changing, winning the Climate and Community and, uh, Protection Act. Uh, we have been part in the past of land bank and, and many kind of green, complete streets, environmental law efforts, and then quite a bit of justice reform as well. So we've been part of um, the effort to reform solitary confinement, which led to the halt solitary law passing too. And one uh, not so small thing for the people of the Fruit Belt, uh, setting up that parking system in the Fruit Belt, where for uh, the early days of the Niagara, uh, Buffalo Niagara Medical Campus, uh, residents weren't able to park on their own streets. Yes, yeah, so that's an example certainly led uh, by partners and by resident groups in the Fruit Belt, uh, where they, just like this public banking issue, they had to go to the state, they had to take it to Albany in order to make something happen here in Buffalo. So they really wanted um, parking permits when all of a sudden, you know, hundreds and hundreds of medical campus employees were trying to park on their streets. They couldn't get anywhere near their homes to park. Um, and it turned out that that wasn't something Buffalo had the authority to create without Albany, the state legislature, authorizing that. So they went through that whole process, which was amazing. And uh, one, I believe, the first, uh, you know, neighborhood-specific residential parking permits in the state. Yeah, if you're not familiar, if you haven't been over there, there are signs along the streets mm. now that say, you know, resident permits only. And uh, it can't be daunting for us who don't have those per- permits there. But nonetheless, it, <laughs> it, it, its purpose is being fulfilled. And it's, it does kind of show, and that's a small, small step, but so important for uh, the people who live in that neighborhood. And, you know, small steps can be really important. And I think that that is critical to remember. Um you know, imagine you've lived in a place for 25 years and all of a sudden you can't park anywhere near your home. Do you really feel like that's your neighborhood anymore? Who matters most in that neighborhood? Is it you as a 25-year resident or somebody who just started working there six months ago? Um, So there are steps that government can take to really say we value you as long-term residents. Um, And I think those are really important steps to take to show we believe in the long-term health of neighborhoods, that the belonging and identity of neighborhoods for residents really matters. We've got about five minutes to go here on Buffalo What's Next with uh, Andrea O'Sullivan. She's the executive director of the Partnership for Public Good. And I wanted to get into, there's 11 points on the community agenda. 
we're not going to get into them all right now, but that's okay because I, I, I think what we've been able to focus on here right off the bat are the ones at the top and also the ones that are just, just seem to be flashing in as real mm. uh, interesting perspectives and, and uh, issues that we've heard develop in the last couple of months. But number four, the forgotten population. The Forgotten Population. What's the Forgotten Population? Yes, yeah, so this issue was brought to us uh, by Leah Angel Daniel, who has an organization called Fostering Greatness. And she says that the Forgotten Population is foster care, youth, and young adults. Mm. So not necessarily young people who are in foster care, but folks when they are hitting 18, 21, as they start to what's called age out of the system, what happens during that transition? What support are they given? Um, And Leah is a graduate and alumni herself of foster care. And so she has seen firsthand um, that they are really missing supports not only to help them thrive as they go out into independent life after foster care, but to be frank, just to keep them safe. And she has shared with us stories of young people who, once their days in foster care is over, end up in very precarious and dangerous living situations because they're not able to find an affordable place to live. Um, So, you know, this is another one. Very often, Our partners will bring us priorities and part of our work as the kind of, uh, you know, policy nerds, to be quite (laughs) frank, is to say, um, you know, what level of government is responsible for this issue? And so foster care is handled by the county. Um, and, and, you know, they have so many resources for the foster care system overall. But again, what happens to the young adults as they graduate? There are some transition programs, but Leah and Fostering Greatness would say, particularly for the youth in the city of Buffalo, um, they could really use more services for housing support, employment development, skills training. Um, and it's a little bit of a gap in the government system because the city has no Uh, official remit specific to foster care or foster youth. So we're really just encouraging some city departments to see that this is an overlooked population within the city of Buffalo and that those foster care graduates in particular out of the whole county, the ones that are resident in the city, could use more support. And we're probably not talking about, well, I'm going to use a double negative there, so I'll rephrase. This is not a small population. Correct. I mean, I mean, thinking about the societal issues that go on inside the city of Buffalo, if not everybody necessarily goes into foster care, some end up with family members and things along those lines. But it's I think it's it, it must be a, a key part of, of the population. It in that is. Regard. It is. And, and, you know, another piece that we do is often gather the data, because that's something we had to ask at the start of this year. What is the population? How many young people graduate each year? Um, And very often that's hard to get. So we do a lot of work to get that. But I think um, it's not a small population. And at the same time, it's not huge. It's not beyond our reach. You know, if we supported 50 foster care youth graduates a year with more targeted support, that would make a huge difference. So it's I think it's not beyond our reach. It is doable. Uh, There's a lot on this agenda. And like you said, you you described yourselves as policy nerds over the Partnership for Public Good. But getting outside the specifics of things. What about just the idea? Is it a hopeful sense that you have about issues in this area moving forward? Um, It is. And I think that over the years in in Buffalo, I joined PPG in 2017. 
um, what we see is that everyday folks are getting more and more active and engaged. Do you see that? I mean, I I feel that too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think if we do our job right, we could be out of business in another 10 years because (laughs) people are so skilled at doing their own data research, at posting their own analysis, at meeting with their elected officials. All of those civic skills are growing. Of course, there's a need for a lot more. And do you see it? I mean, just this when you see something like this redistricting issue that has emerged and you see so many people getting involved all of a sudden, does that kind of, again, boost you up a little bit that, that yeah, people want to get involved. They want to make a difference. That's right. The more civic engagement, the better. Um, and, you know, I think we're all trying to use new tools to get the next generation of residents engaged. And that's something we're certainly seeing happen. Well, Andrea O'Sullivan. Executive Director for the Partnership for Public Good. Thanks very much for joining us. And I, we only got through four of the 11, so we've got to come back, right? Thanks so much. I'd love to. All right, Andrea. Thank you. And thanks uh, to everybody for being with us. Uh, we had uh, Professor Russell Weaver on with uh, Dave Debo earlier talking about the Buffalo redistricting process that's turning into quite the controversy here in the city of Buffalo. And, of course, we'll have more on Buffalo What's Next as we continue to move forward. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOL and Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown.